Jonah chapter 4. There you go. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and, it, um, and made it come up over Jonah and it, uh, that it might be a shade over his head and save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, do not know their right hand from their left, and so much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is the last sermon in this series on uh, the book of Jonah, sort of. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean by sort of in a second here. The book of Jonah is primarily known because of the big fish. In fact, in the movie Avengers, uh, Tony Stark tells his uh, robot assistant there, um, pull that up because I didn't write in my notes, I better read it from here. Um, Jarvis, you ever hear the tale of Jonah? And his, his robot assistant tells him, um, I wouldn't consider him a role model, sir, as Tony Stark is about to uh, fly right into the mouth of one of the uh, Shatari Leviathans, in case you didn't know what they were called, that's what they're called. Um, you know, I would agree with Jarvis. I, wouldn't say, I would say that uh, Jonah is not a role model. What he is is, what he is, is a mirror. And this mirror has three faces. Jews to this day will read the entire book of Jonah and on the Jews' most holy day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The story of Jonah is a powerful story, even though most kind of narrow it down to something that would be kind of simplistic, kind of G.I. Joe, not knowing is half the battle. But Jonah is so much more than that, we know that this city of 120,000 people at least is saved. Before I go any further, I want to give you what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. I've been teasing at this the last however long I've been going about this, um, because the rest of the story is not a happy story. At the end of chapter 3, there's revival in the great city, and God spares them from the destruction he had planned. Yay. Unfortunately, this revival does not last forever. 
Jonah's time and the time that we read about in Jonah was in was about 746 BC. Now understand when we talk about time periods in BC, we uh, we count um, we count down instead of counting up to go forward in time. So 746 BC is about the time we're reading about right now. The Assyrian government, who Nineveh is the capital city of, invades and conquers Israel, the northern kingdom, Jonah's country. They invade, they conquer in 732 BC. That is only about 13 years later. Kind of like takes the wind out of your sails. Like, revival! 13 years later, they're conquering Israel. And they do to Israel what they do to a lot of countries, where they take all the, they kill as many people as they can, they take the best and the brightest, and then they then scatter them. One thing that's good is historians have noticed there was a dramatic difference, though, in how they conducted their war before and after the time of Jonah. So that is something that is good to hear, that they were, in fact, less brutal. But they do go back to their old ways. In fact, the prophet Nahum prophesies against them. A date you should really be aware of is 612 BC. 612 BC. This is known historically as the Battle of Nineveh. Um, rebelling against the Assyrians, an allied army which combined the forces of the Medes and the Babylonians besieged Nineveh and sacked the 750 heca acre of what was at the time one of the greatest cities in the world. The fall of Nineveh led to the destruction of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Over the next three years, as the dominant state in the ancient Near East, archaeological records show that the capital um, of the once mighty Assyrian Empire was exclusively de-urbanized and depopulated in the decades and centuries following the battle. That's the raw historical data. Let me put that into perspective on what we have been talking about. So God tells Jonah, go to that great city and preach against it. Jonah preaches against it and tells him, in so many days the city will be overthrown. They repent, God relents. But then a hundred years later, they are overthrown completely. Other nations do to them what they have done to other nations. What they did to Israel, others do to them. Except, uh, in this case, they, 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 they completely wipe them out. There's no more Assyrians, there's no more Ninevites after that time. One thing I want to point out before I go any further on too, though, is that uh, Jonah's tomb is in modern-day um, modern uh, Iraq, which is uh, ancient Nineveh. You may have heard about Jonah's tomb in 2014. Um, it was all over the news because it, it was located in Mosul, Iraq. It was destroyed by ISIS. Modern-day Iraq is about where ancient Nineveh is, and the mosque there was supposedly held the remains of Jonah. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't believe this one single bit, because if everybody here who goes over to the, ancient, to, the, to the Middle East tells me that you can find many tombs of Jonah, you can find many tombs of everybody there. It's basically for tourists, but I did find it very, very tender and heartening that in ancient Nineveh, there, was a, there is a place that would carry the tomb of Jonah. So, what is the point? What is the point? What's the point of the last five, six weeks if Nineveh is just going to be destroyed anyway? What's the point of revival if uh, if it doesn't 
if it doesn't hold, and they just go back to their old ways. I think this is kind of the temptation we feel when we read the news and we see people going back to their old ways. We see America, there used to be a first great awakening, then a second great awakening. There's this revival, this revival, but then we just keep going back to these things. We're like, what is the point? I remember a... Uh, He's not a pastor anymore. His name was James McDonald. He was over in Chicago, and he did this thing called the Elephant Room. People were criticizing him about this, and he said, you know what the real elephant in the room is? Is how evangelicalism in America, it just keeps going down and down and down, and we don't have influence anymore. People aren't coming to churches. And I remember thinking at the time, I want you to settle down, because that's, God will build his church. Amen. And it's not about the evangelical church in America it wasn't about the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel. It wasn't about the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh. But it was about a kingdom. A kingdom of God. Amen. And we see things so carnally sometimes. Because we see them in political ways. Or we see them in areas of influence. But really we need to see what is God most concerned in all of the things that are going on here. Is 120,000 people who did not know their right hand from their left. 120,000 people that were written in his book of life. 120,000 people, you know, there's this story. Um, there's a story about this man who comes out to his beachfront property after this big storm. And along the beach is all these starfish. Which is really nice to see, but the sun's about to come out and it's going to dry up and kill all those starfish. He sees this little boy at one end of the beach. And the little boy, he's grabbing all these starfish and he's throwing them into the ocean. There's thousands and thousands. There's no possible way he's going to make any kind of an impact. So he goes over to the boy. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, you're not going to make any difference. There's too many of them. And the boy grabs another starfish. He's like, means a lot to this one. So I tell you the rest of the story. They're destroyed. They're scattered. But what Jonah does there, that one day echoes in eternity. And today in heaven, there's 120,000 Ninevites who repented and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And every work you do, as you do unto the Lord, with all of your heart, as act of worship, will echo in eternity. You may feel, what can I do? The jobs are too big. What The, the, the situation is unwieldy. We're not called to fix the situation. Christ built his church in the nations plot in vain. The nations plot, they rage, and the God who's in heaven laughs at them. Amen. But what are we called to do? We are called to do what Jonah is called to do, to go to these people and tell them of the goodness of Jesus Christ. Because even if one, or even if none, repent, we've done what our Father has asked us to do. Today, I'm going to kind of fit another sermon into this sermon. Don't worry, it's not going to be too terribly long. But the story of Jonah in the book of Jonah is very much like a story that Jesus told in his ministry, a, a story about two lost sons. We often talk about this as the parable of the prodigal son, but there are two lost sons in this story. And you can find this in Luke chapter 15. I preached on this before. In fact, my first sermon here, I preached on this parable. In fact, it must have been pretty good since you all voted for me. So... Uh, <laughs> Story of the prodigal son, but there's two lost sons. There's a son who is lost in a faraway country, and a son who is lost at home. Jonah happens to be both of these. This parable is like a retelling of the book of Jonah. 
It probably could be used to explain a lot of events in Scripture. In fact, it could probably be used to explain your own life. It's what every story is ultimately about. In the Bible, outside of the Bible, it's about a marriage between God's justice and God's mercy. The story Jesus told was really aimed at the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both of these stories, both the actual story of what happened with Jonah and the story the parable Jesus tells, they both have an ending that's not an ending. In the parable, we are left asking, what did the older son do? At the end of Jonah, we are asked, how does the prophet respond? So let me break down the parables for you. The parable of Jesus, the parable, one parable, the parable of Jesus about the younger son. The younger son, he comes to his father and he demands his inheritance and then he runs away to a far off country. In chapter one of Jonah, we have a prophet who is told by his God to go to a far, to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach against it. He then decides, nope, I'm going the other way. He looks to go to a far off country. Really, it would be very hard to go past Tarshish back in those days. Basically, it would be the same thing as, you know, going to Timbuktu, um, just as far as you possibly can get away, or if, if you like Garfield, Abu Dhabi. Um, in Jonah's time, you'd be hard-pressed to run away further than Tarshish. There is a deeper similarity. Both run away from their father to do what they want to do, not as the father wills. Jonah, in chapter 1, is a rebel against God as much as the younger son in Jesus' story was. When we think of rebellion, we often think of the younger son. It describes him as living riotously. That's like the King James Version. I love that word, riotously. I don't know exactly understand what it means. Like, it's like a whole city's riot is like within him. And he's just doing everything he wants, breaking stuff, setting stuff on fire. I don't know. But he's living riotously. We think of rebellion as that. But you know what rebellion also is? When God tells you something to do and you say, rather not. No, I don't think I want to do that. It's the reason it's the reason Jonah runs as well. That he, it's not that he was afraid that the Ninevites wouldn't listen to him and wouldn't repent. He was afraid that they would. The younger son decides to cry out. Here's the third, here's the third way that Jonah is like the younger son. Is that in their time of utter despair, they cry out to their father. They cry out to the Lord. The younger son is in a faraway country. He's living riotously. He loses all his money. There's a famine. And he's hiring himself out to one of the people in the, in the community. And he's feeding the pigs. And all he can think about is, man, that slob the pigs are eating, that looks really delicious. <laughs> so, for a brief period of time when I was growing up, growing up, we rented a house on a pig farm. I never thought what the pigs eat looks very good. But if you're starving enough... It's not bad at all. So Jonah, he is in his moment of despair. He is sinking in the ocean. He has seaweed tied, tied around his neck. He cries out to God, and instead of envying a pig's breakfast, God makes a fish decide Jonah's going to be breakfast. And the fish swallows him and saves him. The younger son comes back to his father, and his father sees him from a long way off, and he runs to his son. The older brother. Seeking and saving. Jonah does what the older brother in Jesus' story should have done. Jesus gives two stories before the story of the prodigal son. One about a lost coin, and one about a lost sheep. In both of these stories, someone goes to seek and to save that which is lost. In the story of the prodigal son of the two lost sons, 
The son goes off in a faraway country, and nobody seeks and saves him. You know whose job it would have been culturally across cultures of the ancient Near East? The older brother's responsibility. Not the father's. The older brother should have went out, should have told his brother, I know you've been stupid. I know all these things. Our father is a forgiving man. Come back with me. And if he won't forgive you, I will take care of you. Because I am your older brother. But the older brother in Jesus' story has no regard for his younger, for his younger brother. Jonah, now... Admit, kind of, God has to prod him quite a bit, but he does, to his credit, go to Nineveh, and he seeks and saves that which is lost. God actually does that through Jonah, through the message, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, our older brother, said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jonah may not have wanted to, but he came to this great city, and through him God sought and saved that which was lost. Unfortunately, there's another way Jonah is like is like in the older brother. In the parable Jesus gives, I think we all would have liked if he would have stopped after the younger son comes home, the father runs to him and embraces him. Story's done. It's all good. But it doesn't end there. So too, the book of Jonah, we would have liked after chapter 3 if it was done right there. Jonah goes throughout the city. He tells them in so many days the city's going to be overthrown and the people... To the greatest, to the least, repent. And we're like, hallelujah, but there's another chapter. Let's continue reading. <laughs> the, older, the, older, uh, the older brother is angry at the father's mercy. Both Jonah and the older brother are angry with the father for the father's mercy. We see this in the older son who said, when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, and there's a, there's a world of difference between those two, when the son of yours who, who wasted your money, instead of this brother of mine, he mocks his father to his face. What does Jonah do, though? Jonah uses the words that God... In Deuteronomy, when the Israelites made a golden calf, and God said, I'm just going to wipe them all out, and, and Moses begged him not to, God said, I won't, because I am a God who is... Rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Amen. Jonah takes that and spits it back into his face. He says, this is what I mean. So I told you when I was in my own country, that you are God, rich in mercy and abounding in love. The ending of both books is very similar with the older brother and with Jonah. The older brother, we're left at the end of, of Jesus' parable asking, what will the other older brother do? We're not told. At the end of Jonah, we're asked, how does the prophet respond to the Lord's rebuke? Well, we don't know. And the question really is more towards us. Jesus' parable is towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Will you give up your pride and come into the Father's house? For Jonah, will you give up your pride, go into the city, and enjoy your master's happiness? Finally, we have the Father. I was preaching about the... Uh, about Luke 15, and somebody was kind of having an issue with it, and they were like, well, can't you be the father in this story? And I said, nope, that role's already taken. That job's already been filled. That is the Lord. In both instances, what does the father and what does the Lord want? They want relationship. That's truly what repentance is all about. Turning. Not just turning away from our sin, but turning toward God. Turning toward the father. God is pleased and glorified when the people of that great city of Nineveh do that. 
He is also praised and glorified when his prophet does it. It would have seemed in chapter 2, um, we have the younger brother part of Jonah finally realizing himself that God's love is unconditional and that, that salvation is of the Lord. But in chapter 4, we see the older brother coming out, who is disgusted with the father for his mercy toward the younger. In both instances, the father and the Lord are disrespected. And they bear disrespect. Here is another similarity between the two. He is disrespected. The Lord and the Father are both disrespected by the younger and older. For Jonah, he fulfills both parts. Running away shows one kind of disrespect, and disdain for mercy shows another. Jonah's disrespect disrespects God twice, but I guarantee you, you and I have done that and more. Here's something that's amazing, though, and this comes... This gets to the point where we're talking about today, is that both the Father and the Lord go to great lengths to reconcile. The Father. Father, he says he lifts up his robes. In order to run in those days, not only did you have to lift them up, you had to like tie them. It looked like a big diaper. Older men didn't do this because older men were supposed to be respectable. So when Jesus tells this story, he says, the, the man, the, the Father, he lifts up his robes, you can just imagine people going, he does what? He lifts up his robes and he runs to his younger son. But it didn't just stop there. When the older son is pouting outside, the father comes out and entreats with him, only to hear disrespect in return. Jonah runs away from, from God, tries to run away from God, and God sends a storm, he sends a fish. He goes to great lengths for his prophet. He goes to great lengths for the Ninevites, sending this prophet to them. Then he goes to great lengths for Jonah. At the very end, chapter 4, with the storm, and not with the, with the dust storm, that is, with the Sukkot. I'm just saying it wrong again, whatever. Um, the big dust storm that really zaps all of, your, all, all of the water out of your body. With the plant, with the worm, with his loving rebuke, this is mercy towards Jonah. Oftentimes, when we read about Jonah, when we read about Jonah, we are tempted to make this so simplistic, just don't be a bigot, is what I hear most people will preach. And it's like, great, if you're not a bigot, you don't really have much to think about this. But as we hold off on that, and we see ourselves clearly in this mirror, that we are far more like Jonah than we ever want to believe. But we are also loved like Jonah. These are things God is doing for Jonah's good. For Jonah's good, for his salvation, for his sanctification. Tim Keller said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I have broken this book down into more sections, into more sermons than I've seen anybody else do. And I hope it's been uncomfortable because it's been uncomfortable for me. You know, I kind of want to do what a lot of people other do when, they, when you preach on the book of Jonah, is just get to the end and say, well, just don't be a racist. Great. Good story. Let's move on. But when I hold up that mirror and I see the reason why Jonah didn't want to, I maybe see myself a little bit more than I want to. Maybe I'm more judgmental than I ever want to admit to. Maybe when it comes to discomfort, like Jonah was in discomfort, 
I say things I don't mean to, or maybe they are things I do mean that God is pulling out of me. I have broken down this book into more sections than I've seen other people do. I have done that for a reason. It's the same reason I broke this chapter down. That by taking this slow, I can show you the purpose of this book and what God wants to do in your life. First, I want us to look into the mirror and see that we are more like Jonah than we ever would like to admit. As we look into Jonah, I, I don't want us to do what so many other do and make it in basically into a Darman video. If you don't know what I'm talking about, some of you are laughing and stuff like that. If you have an Instagram, you know what I'm talking about. Darman does these little moralistic plays, and like there's this like some crazy thing going on at the end of them. He summarizes it up basically, don't be, don't be mean to other people. And it's like, oh, oh, good. I'm sure that was worth all the money you spent on this. And I, I mean, I, I, I joke, but I watch like all of them because I, I, it's so cheesy, but I'm just, I don't know, it's interesting to me. We have a tendency of doing this with the book of Jonah is making something simplistic, something for other people. It's for the people who put the, the white sheets on their heads. It's for the people who, uh, who stand outside or burn down buildings, things like that. So we break it down into this kind of like, so you see, be nice to people. If we do that, then we have really wasted our time. Everyone says, treat other people the way you would like to be treated. We call it the golden rule. Jesus said as much, but Jesus goes much further than that. We are called to something much further than that. To bless those who persecute us. To love those who hate us. Jesus doesn't tell us to do this because it's easy. And some people, they say they do this, but they're just really lying to themselves, making excuses for what other people do. But to embrace the hurt that somebody's done in your life and then say, I forgive you, I love you who hate me. That's divine. That's impossible without the presence of God. Man, what this book does as we look into it deeper is we maybe see ourselves in Jonah far more, but we also see that we are in need of mercy as well. He doesn't, he doesn't tell this, he doesn't tell us to love our enemies because it's easy, because it's near impossible. It's because in Christ, that's what God has done for us, his enemies. He sent his son to die for us. My aim is the same aim as this book, is to show you the old you is still clinging on. That we take vengeance into our own hands a lot more than we want to admit. That we often reject God and God's mercy for others. That maybe we prize our comfort above souls. But I want you to know this. That the first mirror we see our own tendency to judge and not to forgive others like Jonah. And the second, we see that how our discomfort reveals us. In the last mirror, as we end, I want to show you that God's mercy, His steadfast and tender love, is always for you. In the mirror, in the mirror, you see the mercy of God. One thing I was going to have you do today, and I'm not going to do this because I was, I'm somewhat concerned about the implications if we have two single people doing this. Um, but I was going to have you look into each other's eyes, look deep into each other's eyes. Look close and closer and closer till all you can see is the pupil. And as you look deep into the pupil, do you see somebody there? You do, don't you? Because the eyes reflect yeah. you. And you know what you see in, the, in somebody else's eyes? Somebody who needs mercy. You see them who needs mercy, but you see yourself who needs mercy and God's concern. I said before, when we condemn Jonah, we condemn ourselves. So many people, even Christians, 
live with so much shame from their former life or by a past mistakes. I want to talk to you today about looking into the mirror of mercy. And Biddle mentioned to this to me when once uh, I split this last chapter into three, that this is going to roll right into Easter. I was like, I didn't even realize that. And I'm talking with my wife, and uh, kind of spoiler alert, is uh, this Holy Week, I'm going to be taking these three mirrors and talking about the Passion Week through these three mirrors. About the mirror of injustice. The people who scream, crucify him, believe they were doing a service to God. They were so enraged that they didn't see the object of their rage as somebody important. The second mirror, the mirror of discomfort, that's the mirror that God uses to make us greater disciples because he used that with his own son. The third one, the mirror of mercy, that is Easter morning, the empty tomb. We look into the eyes of Christ, we look into, we see somebody in, reflected in there who needs mercy. A pretty long introduction. Don't worry, I only have two verses to go over today. Um, and it's just this, the gardener and compassion. The gardener and compassion. Verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Perspective. You know, uh, a few years ago, my in-laws gave me and Becca a, uh, tickets to go to Hawaii to see her sister. And we were so excited, this was a Christmas present, and it was like, whoa, wait a minute, this is amazing! Weeks went on, and we were getting closer and closer and closer, and we were getting excited for this, we were buying stuff, and Becca had a, a doctor's appointment, and the doctor's appointment didn't go well at all. And all of a sudden, I, I remember we, 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 we briefly talked about this, it was like, see, I didn't know at the time if you didn't use your ticket, I thought you lost it, and I was like, I don't care. Compared to this, it's yeah. nothing. God is trying to get at Jonah. He uses the illustration of a plan to get to, to get at Jonah that his priorities are so out of whack. Hopefully everyone here knows that your chief priority is God. God is supposed to be number one in your life. Next to that is others. In the section of others, we know that our first responsibility is to our families, then to our church, and then to everyone else. But do we? That is what God is getting across to Jonah here. He had pity for a plant, but what about the people? Well, what about us? Do we weep over the lost? Are we concerned, are we burdened that there are people that we know if they die, they will not be in heaven. They will go to hell. They will suffer eternity. Do we weep over the lost? I remember hearing a pastor named Leonard Ravenhill, great saint of old, look him up on YouTube, you'll be crying for the rest of the day. Anyway, um... And he was saying, you know something, the reason why we don't have revival is we don't have Sunday school teachers who weep over the kids in their city who don't know God. Why we don't have revival is that we don't have pastors who weep over the people in their town and the towns around them who don't know Jesus. And I remember hearing that, and like I said before, you'll be crying for the rest of the day. Anyway, um, and, uh, right? Because, you know something, we get more upset, we get more animated, because one millionaire slapped another millionaire on TV. 
Man, I've been hearing so much sympathy this last week for Will Smith. And I remember thinking, I'm not trying to put anybody on blast who may have said something or you're concerned. Do you know how many people around you are on a thread much narrower than Will Smith? And you'll never get to talk to Will Smith. I don't care what connections you have. You won't get to talk to Will Smith. But you will get to talk to the co-worker who, during their breaks, go into, go into the bathroom just to weep. Because they don't know if they can even last another day. I remember when, when uh, not Bill Gates, the other guy, um, Microsoft guy, uh, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs died. And uh, a good friend of mine was telling me about a mutual friend of ours who was, who was literally weeping about this man who had died because he was a Buddhist, so he wasn't a believer. So he probably, probably wasn't saved. I pray for his sake that he repented before he died. And he was telling me about this. I was like, you know what's so, that's so terrible about that? Is that this man knows people in his life who don't know Jesus, and he's not weeping over them. No, but because Steve Jobs made something I like, because Steve Jobs made the plant, now I'm concerned for Steve Jobs. It's easier to be concerned and have pity over people we don't know, as opposed to the people we see every day. Jonah's priorities were so out of whack that God wants to show him. You had pity, you had hoos over this plant that's temporary, it was meant to be temporary. And he even tells him, you know, you have pity over this, but imagine if you were the gardener. Imagine if you were the gardener. God tells Jonah that he pities the plant, but he didn't plant it, he didn't water it, he sure didn't make it grow. He had, I'm going to talk about what this word is that we translate into pity, hoos over this plant. And it was nothing. It was temporary. It was never meant to last. And Jonah wasn't even the gardener. Imagine how you'd feel if you were. God was the gardener, not of just of that plant, but of all things. He causes them to grow in their time and in their time to wither. Jesus himself will talk about God being the gardener. Jesus is the original gardener. He is there before Eden. He is there in Eden. Jesus will use the language of a gardener several times. Here is just a couple times. Excuse me. John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Speaking of God the Father. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Sorry, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear fruit. Luke 13, 8. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. I'm going to kind of skip over the explanation of that to go to John 20, 15, Easter morning. Mary, the friend of Christ, comes to the tomb. She is the first to see the resurrected Christ, but she doesn't recognize him. So let me read it to you. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You know, sometimes there's one of those things where we're mistaken, but we're gloriously mistaken. She's, she mistakes him for a gardener, but he was the gardener. He was the one who created everything. He is the one who stitched her together in her mother's womb. Our concern over temporary things, we tend to spend our passion over the most unimportant things. It's too bad the plant died. But how, many, but how many of you have been in a knockdown, drag-out argument over something you can't even remember what yeah. it was about? We have great concern over people as long as we don't actually know them, too. 
I see all this concern over um, either or of uh, the two men I mentioned before, but we have people that in our own life that we should be concerned over. Idols. God mocks Jonah over this plant. He lovingly mocks him, but it's mocking nonetheless. God, um, God uh, he uses the same word he will use for his own concern over the people over Jonah's concern for the plant. Because this plant is an idol. Not just the plant, but Jonah's desire for comfort was an idol. This isn't a bridge too far for, e for us either. Comfort is always trying to be an idol in our lives. Sarah Groves had a song many years ago called Painting Pictures of Egypt. And in the song, she theorizes, why would the Israelites want to go back to Egypt where they were beaten and enslaved? She had this great line in there. It's not about losing faith. It's not about trust. It's all about comfortable when you move so much. If we don't take captive every thought, then this is where we drift. Idols always come into the spaces we haven't surrendered to Christ. My second point today, my last point, is verse 11, in which the Lord says to him, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Pity. My translation uses the word pity for both Jonah's concern over the plant and God's concern over the people of the great city. Reminds me of this quote. You can throw that up there, if you don't mind, Emma, about pity. Do you know which slide it is? It's the J.R.R. Tolkien one. It's towards the end. There, there we go. Thank you. I'll just read from here. What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed, stayed his hand. Pity and mercy are not to strike without need, and he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from, from the evil and escaped it in the end. Um, he began his own ownership of the ring, so with pity. In the movie, he says, Pity, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many die deserve life, and some that live deserve death. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. Pretty on the nose when it comes to God's conversation with Jonah. Pity, you pity a plant, but you want to judge those people down there. You want them all to die, but can you bring them back to life? Then what right do you have to judge them? When we talk about not judging, we get it so confused. We think that when Jesus says, do not judge, that means like we can't even say, like, root beer is better than Pepsi. I mean, like, right, we take it to an extreme that the Bible never meant it to be. So let me clear it up to you what Christ means about do not judge. Do not condemn somebody as though they have no way to salvation. Amen. Because that's you, too, without the intervention of Christ. Without the intervention of Christ, I don't care how moral you think you are. Your good deeds are as filthy ranks to him. I don't care how, how smart you think you are or whatever, that is you too. So he, he, he lovingly rebukes Jonah here. He says, should I, not have, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? The word that is used here for pity in both circumstances is the Hebrew word hus. Hus. The word that all our translations are translating into pity is hus. 
And it means compassion, concern, pity. It's a word that doesn't translate well into English. Pastor and theologian H.L. Ellison says, Pity is an inadequate rendering of this word, for it does not bring out the emotional connotation of hoops. Hoops means literally to cover. So let me take you through this even in English, what that would mean. When you see a sleeping child who's uncomfortable because it's cold, and you take a blanket and you cover them, that's hoops. My, uh, my wife's mother, Beth, um, with her three daughters, they'd be in the car and in the in shotgun. Even if they were buckled up, they'd come to a abrupt stop, and she'd do this number. You know, the mother's special. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of silly, because if you're in an accident, that's not going to do anything, I think, anyway. I mean, maybe somebody who knows better than I can tell me. Um, but think about what that means. That, that mother instinct that... Let me take the impact and not them. Mm-hmm. Let me get hurt instead of them. That's who's. On 9-11, when the firefighters and the police officers went into the second tower, knowing that they were probably not going to come back out to sow their lives in order to save others, that was who's. It is when you see a child being bullied, and you just wish you could switch places, that somehow you could receive the emotional scars instead of them. That's who's. And when God looks at people that he knit in, his mo- in their mother's wombs, that he desires for them to know him and to be in a relationship with him, he sent his son, whom he loved, to die in their place, to cover them with his blood, because he has who's. C.S. Lewis, and you can pull this up too. C.S. Lewis, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, they are mortal, and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be, must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest of kinds, which exists between people who have, from the onset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. 120,000. There have been some debate over what the Lord meant by about 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left. What does that mean? Is God suggesting that there's 120,000 people who literally don't know right from wrong? Um, If so, um, if, if, if not, then is it talking only of the children who are not at the age of accountability? That would be a difficult number historically. Um, the city of Nineveh and the greater area would not have the kind of population. So what does he mean by 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand? Not Surely not 120,000 innocent people, for there would not be a need to send a prophet to preach against them for their sin. Here's what that means. Jesus on the cross, he's being nailed to the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, the first martyr, as rocks are flying at his head, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
It's not that they're innocent. It's that they just, they, didn't, they don't know what is right. See, even our righteous acts apart from God are sins, because they are filthy rags before Him. They are permeated with pride. They are slaves to their sin. But that was us before we knew Christ as well. That is the people that we see on TV who drive us up a wall. They don't know their right hand from their left, because they don't know the good to follow it. They only know societal good. They only know good from their own perspective. But they don't know, they've not seen and tasted that the Lord is good. Why does God end the book talking about cattle? Many people have pointed to this, and they will say, surely it's a parable because this is satire. Sort of, sort of not. It's definitely not a parable. It absolutely happened. I think God was really rubbing Jonah's misplaced priorities in it. You see, he first talks about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. And it's kind of like God saying, if that's a bridge too far, Jonah, how about the cattle? How about just the cows? Is it okay for me to be care, care about the cows? You can imagine Jonah like, yeah, yeah, I got you now. I do like that too, because so many of me, I'll be honest, me often, I can have more sympathy for a sick animal than I do for a sick human being. Um, you know, am I the only person who tears up a little bit when you have the Sarah McLaughlin Humane Society commercial? You have the dog who looks sad and she's like, in the arms of an angel. I swear the dog looks at the camera like, this is a bit much, I'm just a dog. <laughs> it is something that kind of gets to our conscience that you probably would care about the cattle. Why don't you care about the people? God cares about you, and he still does. At the end of Jonah, we are left with the question, how did, the, how did Jonah respond? The book is actually asking you, though, how will you respond? Will you come to the place of Jonah that we read in the Midrash, who falls on his face and says, Conduct your world according to the attribute of mercy, as is written, To the Lord our God be on mercy and forgiveness. If we look at Jonah as just simply somebody who has a problem, and I don't have that problem, we don't come to that point. Because we think, well, I'm, I'm fine. But if we examine our life a little deeper into Jonah, and we see, what about the people who have hurt me? What about the people who have oppressed me? What about the people over there who are a danger to my country? What about these people? And for me to come to that point where I'm like, God loves them as much as he loves me, and he desperately wants them, and if I, because he loves me, I am commanded to love them, then I can get to the point where I fall on my face and say, conduct your world according to the attribute of mercy, as it is written to the Lord, our God, you are on mercy and forgiveness. We often condemn Jonah, and like I said before, we condemn, as we condemn Jonah, we condemn ourselves. Jonah's story is a story of a man who is in still, in, still is in need of a savior. And yours is that way as well. We think of mercy, grace, forgiveness, the gospel. That's our ticket into the club. Now we're Christian. Now we work at it. Now we, now we show everybody how we are. God, God is going to be proud that he saved me because of all the things I'm doing for him. And what ends up happening is we end up continuing to mess up. And then our sin is before us. And we hang on to the shame of that sin. And it's not a godly shame because it doesn't make us more in love with Christ. It just makes us more sorrowful in our sin. 
And here's the great privilege of the believer, is that every day we have a privilege to look into the eyes of Christ and to see the mirror of mercy, and to see that, yes, I still need mercy. If it's a pride thing, then God confronts our pride with the first two mirrors, but with the last mirror when we are broken, we see that he still loves and forgives us, because this is for this isn't for Nineveh's benefit. Chapter 4. Nineveh doesn't know any of this. This is for the prophet's benefit. This is for my and your benefit. That all these things, we just don't get crushed in spirit, but we realize that day in, day out, his mercies are new every morning. Amen. All of this whole series to exegete, to draw out from the from the scriptures, the meaning of John 1, 9. Please put that up on the airport. I'm going to blow your mind with the understanding of John 1, 9. When I was learning evangelism, we did the Romans Road, and for some reason we ended with John 1, 9, even though it's not in Romans. And you tell somebody, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the thing, this isn't for unbelievers. This is for you and me, as believers. It doesn't make sense for unbelievers. For if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. We are made justified as we come into the kingdom, not justified before. If God forgives us because of what we've done, then it's a wage, it's not grace. He says we. You know who wrote this? We're going we're gonna to read about them the next couple weeks. If you're, if you're doing your Bible study and you're going to read on the Holy Week, John the Beloved. He wrote the Gospel of John. Amen. And he, say, he, didn't say, he didn't name himself. He said the disciple whom the Lord loved. And I have to imagine all the other disciples, when they read his letter, they're like, you know, Jesus loved me too, right? <laughs> John is called the disciple whom Christ loved. Because he lay, he would, while Christ was teaching, he would lay his head on the Lord's chest. And he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. You know why he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins? Because he already has. Amen. Confession is about healing. Confession is about healing. And the reason why so many are not getting their healing from God, emotional, spiritual healing, is because they don't think they have anything to confess, and they never do confess. Say in the scriptures that confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. You know what confess means? Confess means to speak the same as. Not make excuses. But to fully embrace how terrible my sin is before God. You know something? This is something, honestly, only somebody who's been redeemed can do. And we read that about in the book of Jonah. Does it become a little uncomfortable how Jonah whines to God? How could somebody write that about themselves? Even when we give our own stories, we edit them a little bit, right? I mean, I remember one time, um, one of my teachers uh, blew up at me. And when I was telling other people about it, my tone of voice was nice and even, and it was, you know, it was adult, and his voice was, you know, was, was hysterical. You know what it actually was like? I was so sassy to him, I deserved to get blown up at. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, Mr. Dow here, he's, he's had situations where people were sassy with him in school, and when they told the story, they, they made sure to edit it. Um, Jonah doesn't edit his story because he is somebody who's been redeemed, who's been forgiven his sins, 
and when cleansed from all unrighteousness. So many of us, we carry the shame of former sins in our life. And God is telling you today to look into the mirror of mercy. And you will receive mercy and forgiveness and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Here's the sad thing. God's elect keeps making charges against God's elect. Some people will tell me, forgiveness is not a hard thing for me, Pastor Jason. You know, it's hardest for me to forgive myself. And they think they're being so pious with that. And I said, if that's true, then you don't think much about the blood of Christ. You look at the cross and you say, not enough, I need to punish myself. Not enough. I need to hold on to my shame and my, and, and, and my unrighteousness. But today I want you to know that the mirror of mercy is not just for others, but it's for you. I hope this series has wrecked you the way it's wrecked me. Every week I get ready to preach. I'm like, I can't wait to preach because I've been loving up this the whole week. And God can bring stuff out in me that maybe I haven't forgiven the person like I say I did. And I need to come, I need to look into that, but I also need to look into the mirror of mercy. Because at the end of this series, if you're just like, what a wretch I am. Oh, I, I don't know anything about the Lord. I'm just, it's not good enough. It's not all that God wants for you. He wants you to look into the mirror of mercy. Confess, yes, be as honest as you can to God about it. And then know, know that he has cleansed you from all unrighteousness as surely as he is faithful and just to forgive you. Worship team, would you come up? Chapter 4 is filled with mirrors. The whole book is filled with mirrors. First mirror is how we decide some people are not worthy of forgiveness. That's mirror 1, the mirror of injustice. Mirror 2 is the mirror of idols. It's the mirror of our own comfort or discomfort. When God allows discomfort in our lives, it's for our discipline. Sometimes we see things come out in us that we are not proud of, like Jonah was. Is it right for you to be angry? Yes, it's right for me to be angry, angry enough to die. But for the third mirror, the mirror we should look into every single day is the mirror of mercy. It is the privilege of the son and daughter of God. So that every day I look into the mirror of mercy and I know of a God who despite my own performance, good or bad, loves me. And will run that long way off to find me. Or to confront me outside the party when I'm pouting. Would you please stand as we end in our final song today?